Business as Unusual is a thought-provoking podcast that explores the innovative strategies, disruptive ideas, and unconventional practices driving successful leaders and companies in the ever-evolving world of modern business. Subscribe, comment, and share for weekly inspiration with our host, Aisela. Welcome to Business is Unusual. This is Aisla, and I'm here today with John Pavone, sustainability author and consultant. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. as I was babbling at you before we started, I'm very excited about this. And so before we dive into the work that you're up to, uh, what is the last thing that you did for fun that you want to talk about on a podcast? I like that last part that I want to talk about publicly. <laughs> What was the last thing I did for fun? I'm big into traveling. So I just got back from Vietnam. Uh, it's my my third time there, but the first time not associated with work. Uh, mm-hmm. So I was able to actually relax, have a drink in my hand and sit by a pool for a while. So I think that was probably the last thing I did for fun. So now I'm already in my mind thinking, when's the next vacation? That's nice. I have heard Vietnam is beautiful. I've never been there. I've just known people who've gone. Yeah, gorgeous place. Amazing, obviously amazing food. We all love Vietnamese food and just a uh, beautiful Lots of history, lots of nature as well. So definitely put it on the bucket list. I think I should. Thank you for that. It's a great recommendation. That's my secret agenda with a whole podcast is I ask really cool people what they like to do and what art they're into. And I have this whole list of things to pursue. (laughs) That's one way to do it. (laughs) You could just Google it or talk to people. All right. So you're a sustainability author and consultant. What does that entail? So a lot of my work is with corporations. And I know people hear sustainability and they hear me working with corporations and they think I'm a sellout, but I'm sure we'll get into sort of my theory of change and why I do work with them. I started my career in this like 20-ish years ago before it was even called sustainability. So working with the United Nations in New York and then leaving there to work with a few of the big consultancies and finally starting my own consultancy, working more on the Governance space, which is a big fancy word for making sure companies are doing what they say they are doing. That's actually so important. I went to Climate Week in Amsterdam last year, and this woman, Melanie Reback, who I also think you would love, was speaking, and she said, we need business models to fight business models. And that just sparked me in terms of thinking about it from a whole different perspective. And that's the other thing she talks about in some of the work that she presents is when we talk about ES, the G just gets left out and it's such a critical part of making the rest of it functional. Absolutely. And my take on it, and this is not just me being Pollyanna-ish, it's actually from the experiences I've had and the work that I've done. I'm a big believer that corporations, A, they got us into this mess, so they should be responsible for getting us out of it. But if we compare them to individuals and if we compare them to governments, corporations, private sector, they have more capital, they have more resources, and they definitely have more of a business reason to actually become better and to enter that virtuous cycle of being a more sustainable company. So it just makes sense to work with them. And I love what you just said about creating business models to fight the existing business models. It makes total sense. Mm-hmm. And so uh, obviously, I, I call this business as unusual. So do you want to share a little bit about what is unusual about your approach or the work that you do? It's... I. For me, and certainly for a lot of the 
people I talk to, the unusual approaches that I am working with businesses versus uh, being more on the activist side of things. I would not classify myself as an activist. Let me stretch the imagination. Mm -hmm. I call myself more a pragmatic altruist. So somebody who cares, but also is very structured and again, pragmatic about the way I approach things. And that's what's led me to working with businesses. So I think that is the most unusual part. We're not the, I'm not the only one doing this. There are heaps of people working with the business world to try to make them more sustainable, but we just don't get the PR to let people know that we exist. But I think that's definitely the unusual part. And then probably making it even more unusual is that I work at the, in the most boring part of it all, which is the governance part. A lot of people, like you said, shy away from it or ignore it because it's, it can be mind numbing sometimes, but I like it. <laughs> yeah, I have a, I have a passion for spreadsheets, so I can feel you on that. <laughs> I didn't know if I would go that far with myself, but more power to you. <laughs> That's fair. What in your life or your past at the stage for this to be something that you see as a need or something that you're doing? Yeah, I thought about that. And I, I some other podcasts I've done, people have asked this, especially if I go on one with a, a psychologist at the other end and they'll start to psychoanalyze me and ask, what in your childhood no. was this? And I don't think I don't think we're going back that far. I don't think there was actually anything in my childhood, any sort of trauma that, that would have led me to this. But it was by accident, professionally speaking. When I was living in New York, I had gone on a trip to Shanghai and thought, oh, this is amazing. Like, I've never experienced anything like this. It was a totally different world, totally eye-opening. And I got back to New York. At that time, I was still working with the UN. It was the height of the global recession, and everybody was really sad, and it was a depressing place to be. So I thought, John bite the bullet, go and move to China. You call yourself a worldly person, go and do it. So I did, but I had to figure out a way to use all of my public sector experience that I had spent time in school and professionally gaining in a very commercial city. Shanghai is capitalism on steroids. So I fell into sustainability, which is the, the marriage of the public sector and the private sector. And the rest is history. I thought I would be in Shanghai for a few years and give the sustainability thing a go. Uh, Ten years later, I was still there and looking for the next adventure. So uh, I'm not there anymore. I'm currently in Australia, but certainly still in the public good space. I love that. I Sorry, my brain just jumped into four different places at once and crashed together. Uh, my goal in life is to make people do that. Oh, the success. Look at that. <laughs> You've achieved your goal already. <laughs> at 8 a.m. Stay's done. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I did a presentation actually for a, a group of international entrepreneurs and business oriented people on businesses activism and pointed out that most of the activism actually that occurs in business is more furthering like capitalism. It's like lobbying companies and governments to deregulate and allow extractive behaviors. And so it's just interesting to me because what you're talking about with a marriage of the two, it's it's important. We are integrated as people. Our businesses have the same consequences. Even though they're looking at profitability, they're, the consequence of the world burning, it's they will also lose customers, right? Like mm -hmm. just in a basic sense. So it may, it's exactly it. They, you got to keep your customer base. And if they're not around anymore, then it makes it a little hard. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I'm not advocating that we, we stop fighting capitalism. I would love for us to figure out a new system, but I know that's not going to happen tomorrow. So in the meantime, we might as well work with the companies to try to make them as good as possible. And just to be entirely clear for anybody listening, uh, there are definite red lines that I do not cross in terms of who I work with. It's not like I'm working with everybody. Uh, the unsustainable folks like uh, defense, tobacco, coal, mining, of course, I'm not working with them because there's no way they could be sustainable unless they shut their doors. But 
for most of the other sectors, there's at least something that they can improve on. So I see myself as as being there to hopefully help them along the way as we, as everybody else fights capitalism. I'll work mm-hmm. on the uh, from the inside. Yeah, well, we need everybody. And the thing is, you can't imagine a world. You can't create a world you haven't imagined. I do business development consulting, and I work with a lot of smaller businesses, solopreneurs, and one of the things that I find frequently is whether people realize it or not, they have a script in their head about how business is supposed to go. And having somebody that has demonstrated success and experience in running successful businesses in the nonprofit and for-profit sector who says, oh, yeah, no, that's not true. It's shockingly helpful to have in terms of one of the things that I, one of the values that I tend to work with is sustainability. I have to change the name, though, because what I mean is I work with a lot of those solopreneurs who are just are driving themselves and they're not creating a sustainable life for themselves. And it's just like that. If it matters to you today, it's going to matter to you tomorrow. So you have to include that energy into the energy calculation of your inspiration into your equation. But this sort of like bootstrap, do it all, don't ask for help, go until you fall over mentality is so ingrained that you need somebody to to remind you that you're a human being and that ultimately you're probably not going to remember you know, the days that you worked 15 hours as well as you remember the days that you stopped and went and made a memory with a friend or took your kid to the park or did some art. And that doesn't mean you don't care, you're not passionate, you're not committed. And that's on a smaller scale, obviously. But I, I feel like that's a lesson that consistently I have to relearn it. So I and I am lucky to be in a slightly different setup. So I can't imagine that a corporation having somebody like you come in and be like, oh, no, you can be profitable and not be problematic. It's okay. You can actually do both. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. And if I have to hear one more mentor, and I'm using massive air quotes here, uh, tell me to rise and grind and get up at 3 a.m. to be as, as successful as possible, I'm going to scream because that's not what it takes. And I always tell people, and it doesn't matter if it's in a business setting or just in your personal life, pick your passion point. Because at the end of the day, time, resources, sanity are all finite things, right? And we'll run out of them eventually, especially as people who operate in a solo entrepreneur environment. It's really important to pick the thing you're either really good at, or you have a passion for, or uh, at least in the case of charity, if you can financially contribute to something. Because otherwise, you're going to be trying to do all things. And we know very well that when you try to do everything, you accomplish nothing at all. Yeah. I'm curious. One of the things that I feel like I frequently get into with folks in the, I guess, progressive liberal world when we talk about business is I feel like we need to make the business case. Not because that's the most important thing, but when you're talking to a business, you have to make the business case. So I'm curious if you have any tips, tricks, or thoughts about that. Yeah, it's been the bane of my existence to try to make the business case for sustainability in a way that makes sense. And I think primarily for those that, and I hate to keep talking about them, I always do this, but they're so easy to, for those on the more activist side of saving the planet, this is where they miss out a bit is in how they're not remembering the audience they're talking to, because we have to adjust our message. It's so important. And A lot of my career, again, is spent in China, and that was more on the social side of sustainability. So working particularly in and out of factories, developing worker betterment programs, talking to middle managers about 
things that have absolutely nothing to do with their job, like helping out their female workers. What do they care about that they don't? They're just trying to meet their KPIs at the end of the day. So how do we adjust the conversation in a way that makes sense to them and gets them to move to action? And I'll, I'll give an example. And it's an example from a company that everybody loves to hate, especially in the US, and that's Walmart. Mm. Walmart, it's a terrible company in a lot of ways. But in the developing world where they have intricate and extensive supply chains, they're doing a lot of amazing things. They don't talk about it, but they are, especially by female workers. And I suppose I'll give a bit of a trigger warning because we're going to talk about family planning in a second. And I hope that's okay with your audience. But the conversation to get into these middle managers' heads was around the idea of female workers and abortion. So in China, abortion is considered a form of contraception. And so if, for example, you're a highly functioning Walmart supplier factory and half of your workers are female, and at any one time, let's say just throwing out random numbers, a quarter of them are either out or recovering from an abortion. That's impacting your bottom line mm -hmm. dramatically because they're coming to work. They're probably not as productive. They're probably out a lot. So high absenteeism. But if you approach a middle manager or management with this conversation saying, hey, there are things you can do about it. You can do uh, reproductive health education. You can do family planning education so that your workers are no longer using that as a form of contraception. What happens is you have lower absenteeism because now people aren't out sick or doing procedures. The workers are happy. They're healthier by and large. And because of that, even though it doesn't sound so altruistic, but they end up being more productive and that impacts your bottom line. So you tie in the altruism with the business case, and that's what gets people's ears perking up. For me, the ends justify the means. If I have this conversation with a middle manager and it impacts even one person working in a factory in a positive way, I've done my job. But these things, especially for a company like Walmart, we're done at scale. We're talking hundreds of thousands of women going through this program. So certainly having the right conversation, remembering the audiences we're talking to so you can actually speak to them in a way they understand versus just yelling at the top of your lungs and nobody listening is so important. And that's just one example of the impact the private sector can have if we just approach them in the right way. I am so there with you. I'm all about figuring out what works. Obviously, again, there are some, there's a scope. <laughs> and at the same time, I look at where we're at in a variety of social and environmental political issues here in the United States. And it's like the things we've been doing haven't worked. So figuring out who you're talking to and without betraying your values, how do you communicate? Or, because if I don't care why you do it, like you can do it for productivity, but if you're doing it, they actually consistently have shown behavior is what changes social uh, systems and it's what changes minds. Changing your mind is less likely to change your behavior that changing your behavior is to change your mind. So if I can convince you using your paradigm and framework to take an action, then you have more access to the experience of what that would be like. And you have a higher likelihood of convincing yourself, honestly. That's exactly right. And if we look a bit back through the history of sustainability, Originally, back in the 1960s, when all of this started at the, the time Rachel Carson published Silent Spring, it, it was all about people power. And you had everybody behind this. So you certainly had the environmentalists and the activists. But as shocking as this might be to people today, even politicians were behind the idea of building a more sustainable future. The first Earth Day in April 72, 70, 72, 
was actually founded by a group of American senators, which is shocking. So John Kerry founded, which is Mm -hmm. amazing, he's still alive today, founded Earth Day. But today, there's no way you would ever think a politician would really, honestly, would genuinely get behind building a better future. And a lot of that is because, A, we've forgotten the audience and the message, but the big conglomerization of business in the 80s means that people power is great, but the problems are so large, we can't just solely rely on people power anymore. Mm-hmm. I think the paradigm, though, is that we're supposed to be relying on people power. The old Gandhi quote of being the change you want to see in the world. Yeah, that's great, but that's not going to cut it anymore. We've mm-hmm. realized that certainly people power isn't enough. Governments are not helping. There's an amazing web resource called the Climate Action Tracker. And what they do is they monitor how well every country is performing versus their Paris climate agreements, which are coming up, I think, next year. There are exactly zero countries on track to meet their Paris climate agreement. So we know government is not really genuinely behind this. So that leaves us again, going back to what we started this conversation with, the private sector being the one responsible to do everything because they can do things at scale versus just the people power that I'm not telling anybody to stop the amazing things that they're doing. Please keep going. But uh, don't separate your glass from your aluminum and sit back and think you've done your part because there's a lot more that needs to be done. Yeah, I feel that was a tangent to your comment. No, but it was great. I love it. As <laughs> I love, I think it was John Oliver. I really love him. And he did a piece on what well, you're talking about, the recycling situation. And he said the the really interesting thing about that is what they've done is you can't buy anything in the state. That's not true. It's very difficult to buy things that don't come with plastic and other yeah. non-recyclable, non-decomposing items. It's a, but we've somehow turned it into personal shame rather than corporate responsibility. And I really love that framing. So I was like, and I agree, we all do the best we can to, I would say, mitigate and limit the worst of our impact. And the reality is that as individuals and even as small communities, we really, we have very little power to do that. Uh, the- Only about, I think it's 9% of all plastic around the world is actually from household waste. The other 91% comes from business. And even within that, it's so, the amount is so massive that I think the latest statistics are around 55 to 60% max even gets recycled, even enters the recycling stream. The rest, who knows? It probably ends up in the ocean for many reasons because of the scale, but also because the infrastructure is not necessarily there either to deal with the scale of the problem. And that's an entirely different conversation is when we try to build a better world, is the infrastructure actually there to help us realize our dreams? So yes, passing the buck. And I just published, I'm going to do a shameless plug. I love this. I just published The Great Greenwashing, How Brands, Governments, and Influencers Are Lying to You. It's my second book. It'll be available in the United States in February. It's available across the Commonwealth now for anybody who's not in the US. But I talk a lot about the issues of how corporations are passing the buck onto all of us as consumers. And one of the biggest ways, like you were just mentioning, is this idea of it's our responsibility to save the world from plastic use when anywhere you go, it's not really our tote bag that we're carrying to the store or the hundreds that we have because we keep forgetting it that is making the difference. It's going to be corporations not using a plastic bag to sell me my pasta. Right, exactly. Because it, it, that choice, and it's interesting because the politics in the U.S. are very freedom choice oriented, at least when it comes to masks and plastic. But ultimately, it's a lack of choice. Like, I cannot go to a store and see an option that fits my values around sustainability. 
I can go through a, an incredible amount of hoops to try and access that. And, and there are ways and places that I have done that. And there are a lot of places where it's really not feasible. And, and we all know what everybody's thinking the same thing right now, because you're saying that and they're thinking, yeah, I can access it, but I can't afford it. Because oh, you it's can't afford it. Too yeah. expensive. You can go to one of those. We call them here in Australia. I think it's called Source Bulk Foods. It's basically a place where you there's no bags or plastic or anything. And you just pull your stuff out of a bin. Yeah. Uh, and it's so cost prohibitive. It's like why nobody goes there because it is so difficult to either afford to be sustainable and good when you do your shopping or it takes a lot of research, which nobody really has the time or inclination for. I guess if I'm waxing positive and poetic for a second, the work I've done and what I see is that a sizable portion of corporations have entered a virtuous cycle where it's no longer about competing on just the bottom line, but it is about competing on being better. And so while all of these things are facing a consumer today, you go to the shelf and you're like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. I would venture to guess if I had a crystal ball, let's say 15 years from now, that's not going to be the case anymore because you'll go to the store and 90% of the work will have been done. Every choice you make will be a good choice because those dinosaurs that are not playing ball today, the capitalism is going to take care of them. One of the few silver linings of capitalism is it takes care of companies that don't keep up with the times. And I think we've entered a time now where competing on being better for the planet, better for people is just table stakes now. So hopefully it's not 15 years down the line where all these things happen. Hopefully it's a lot sooner, but there is reason to hold out hope as consumers. I'm actually really happy to hear that from somebody who's a little bit more in the know, I would say. The other thing you made me think of is when I did the, it was a, a train the trainer in post-growth entrepreneurship. So they had all these different presentations. And they talked about these two things that you're probably familiar with, but um, I'll bring them up anyway, because I think that they could be interesting for the listeners as well, which is the Fairphone and Tony's Chocolate. So the Fairphone was a European attempt. This guy got a bunch of funding to try and make a fully non-conflict minerals phone, right? He got a bunch of funding and he went through this whole process to try and create that and found out actually it's impossible. No matter how good your intentions are, you, can, you cannot source a phone without being part of the blood problem and other problems, too. So what they did finally was they found and purchased a tungsten mine and then hired workers at a fair wage and created an actual mine where they're mining their tungsten for their phone. This, they got one piece, this whole process of years of research, they got one. But I believe it's Apple and IBM are now getting like 30% of their tungsten from that mine. They didn't achieve their full goal by any means, but in the attempt to achieve it, they created one piece of the supply chain to be slightly more accessible and equitable. And that's what I see. I feel like one of the things that I see a lot in my progressive colleagues <laughs> Is there's this real ideological purity. If you haven't done it perfectly 100% all the way, you've sold out, you've betrayed us, you've failed. And like, that's such a, in my opinion, poor perspective. <laughs> because if you don't try, you don't discover what the problems are. You don't discover what the creative solutions are. And IBM and or whatever the two companies are that are using this mine, they would still be using this. They weren't going to go discover it and create it. They don't care. But if they have a choice between something that is problematic and something that is reasonably equal and not, possibly because of this virtuous cycle, they'll move towards that. 
but it has to be, someone else has to go find it. They're not going to look for it, in my opinion. So. One of the, this was in the research for the great greenwashing, but something I assumed was going on as well is a concept called astroturfing, which is where these big corporations, particularly the highly polluting ones in oil, gas, et cetera, they own a lot of media companies and they create these, they feed in and create these dialogues and concepts that a lot of us have grown used to. We talked about the plastic bag thing, but the one that there's two that are currently going on, one is doomism, right? Like we're mm. screwed. Don't worry about it. Just stop doing what you're doing. That's pushed by them. But the other one is this idea of the perfect environmentalist. There's mm -hmm. no such thing as the per a perfect environmentalist. None of us are. I think I'm probably wearing something from fast fashion at the moment, right? Oh, no. But it's not about being perfect. And the more we strive for that, the more we're going to just uh, burn ourselves out. So for everybody listening, you don't have to be perfect. But what we do need to do, going to your example about the tungsten mine, which is uh, fascinating, I'll have to look up a little bit more about it, is we need to be moving the needle in the right direction. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not black and white. It's not happening tomorrow. Just keep moving things forward because otherwise we're just going to stop and eventually the the whole ball is going to roll backwards. So we have to keep moving it forward and it doesn't need to be perfect. The example of phones and anything with rare earth minerals, electric vehicles as well, is actually a very good example where, you know, I, I grew up in Southern California. We've been talking about 100% electric vehicles since I was a kid and it never happened. It still hasn't happened. But finally, somebody, even though I don't want to mention his name, pushed a conversation forward around electric vehicles. And that became a differentiator for automobile companies. So much so to the point now, I think every major automobile company has at least one electric vehicle in their lines, if not more. So now the differentiator is no longer electric vehicles because we know they're not amazing. They have lots of inherent problems in them. But are they better than a combustion engine? Absolutely. So now, because companies are no longer competing on just having an EV, they need to think further ahead. And some of the automobile companies that I do work with are already looking at what is next beyond electric vehicles. How do we make a better electric vehicle, a more sustainable one? Or do we scrap that idea entirely and create something that doesn't need rare earth minerals, that doesn't, isn't so problematic? We keep moving the needle forward and onward and upward to create a more sustainable future. And to your really your original point of the whole thing around the cost of goods, uh, just a little anecdote, since I was talking about Vietnam earlier, I accidentally found in Saigon a coffee shop that actually pays a fair wage, does everything above board and entirely ethically, and you pay the true cost of a cup of coffee. Oh my gosh, like the cost of a cup of coffee is out of control. I think I had an espresso and it was 35 US dollars. Mm -hmm. That is the true cost of goods that people aren't quite ready to realize. And that's just coffee. You can't even begin to have the conversation around how much a piece of clothing actually costs if we didn't pay slave wages. Yeah. And that's more moving to things that last longer, right? So that, yes, if I buy one thing, I'm not very fashionable anyway. So <laughs> and just wear the same thing all the time or pretty close to it that then paying a lot more for a piece of clothing I, and coffee for me actually i went i had the privilege of going to costa rica several years ago and i went to a coffee farm and and found also that it's four years for the first set of beans and i'm just like man i drink this stuff it's everywhere 
And it's not. It's like four no. years for me to get a cup. <laughs> I, I was just like, that's not good. It all goes back to to this idea of conscious consumption, right? You don't have to know yeah. everything about where your stuff comes from, but at least know a little bit. If you're buying a, a shirt from somewhere, at least know what went into it. Don't be so ignorant or naive. There's, I, I'm on TikTok quite a bit. I love TikTok, and there was there was a whole thing around the Shein influencer. Shein had paid a group of influencers to go to China to basically it was a PR stunt. But one of the videos that an influencer had posted, she was in a factory and she had made the off comment and she said, oh, how could this be a sweatshop? Nobody's even sweating. And that to me shows how far removed we are from the means of production and who's actually making our stuff that this is now a a joke. It's not a joke. It's not funny. So I think we do need to go back to this idea of being more conscious about the things we're buying and at least understand a little bit more before we, we pay the money we're paying or... If you're buying something really cheap, at least understand why, because somebody somewhere along the lines is paying the cost, even if it's not you. Yeah. I'll get off my soapbox. Oh, no, that's the whole point. This is your soapbox. (laughs) Happy to have you on it here. Would you be willing to share some advice that you received or something you took as advice that influences the way that you show up in this effort that you're into? Absolutely. And I don't know where this comes from. And I don't know who told me, but it's something that definitely it, it rings true. And it's what I always remember. And we we're chit chatting about it a, a bit earlier just, uh, around finding your passion point. But anyways, the piece of advice is that you can do anything, but you cannot do everything. Mm. I think that's so important. It doesn't matter if it's sustainability or just your personal life. You can't do it all. And we shouldn't be expected to. So really focusing in on what it is you love or you're good at is so important just for our own sanity, but also so we can actually amplify the effect of what we're doing. You can't do something if you're burnt out, especially if you're an altruist and you do care. We want to do everything. We want to adopt every dog on the street, feed the homeless person, go to the shelter, do all these different things. You, you can't. You do need to get to a point where you realize that's okay because yeah. you're not the only one doing this. There are billions of people that care just as much as you and I do, so they will pick up where you can't. So it'll all get it'll all get handled at the end. Just make sure you're focusing on what it is you can do and then leave the rest for everyone else. Yeah. That is great advice. And it and I think to go back to your earlier point, there's a doom and gloom amplification. And I actually really that's part of why I do the podcast is I feel like we're always being marketed to we're being marketed to about what we lack and how someone else is going to sell us a solution. And in my experience in the world is there's so many more of us who are committed to a genuine community and who actually want to make a difference. And sometimes we'll make choices and take actions because we have that intention and we're actually going away from that because we don't know X, Y, or Z about the supply chain or something like that. So I feel like you can't look at things and say, oh, nobody cares. Because I think a lot of people do. It's just that the information and education process has Oh, I think been suppressed. And we need to find ways to communicate to one another so that we can work together in a little a web of wonder. I don't know. That was alliterative, but I don't know if it made any sense. <laughs> no, absolutely. Did I, I agree with you 100%. I, for anybody who's about to call me one, I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any stretch of the imagination. But we were talking about TikTok a second ago. And one of the reasons I, I truly do believe the US is so adamant about stopping it, and particularly at the political level, is because it does allow for community building and it does allow for exact and intimate conversation with people that otherwise you would never have access to. 
global media is owned by just six corporations. Mm -hmm. So you have six boards of directors that are honestly probably pale, male, and stale telling us exactly what we should think, what we should do, and how we should live our lives. So anything that upsets that status quo, to your point earlier about different paradigms of thinking, is going to shake those in power down to their core. So I really do think that's why they don't want us communicating, mm -hmm. uh, because it does eliminate the need for an us versus them uh, dialogue, which is ideally where we want to go if we want to make any change at all. We don't want us versus them. We, it's just us. Yeah, we're all here together on the same planet. There's no planet B. I actually feel that TikTok, I was listening to some of the Senate um, conversations around it, and they were like, oh, it's so invasive. And, and I'm like, it's not more invasive than Facebook. It just doesn't have the same corporate agenda. Like, the Chinese don't care if we talk across racial divides and yeah. unify around things. So they don't decrease that access. And therefore, what you said, like we get to engage with people from different perspectives and learn together and realize, oh, we all actually genuinely have pretty similar desires. Even if we wouldn't necessarily want to chill together, maybe we have different late, like day-to-day -day interests. Our overall desires are very much in sync. But we end up focusing on the day-to-day -day interests as being divides instead of the genuine like life goals and desires that we share. And then we are alone and isolated and we are really ineffective. Whereas if we come together, so I absolutely, I don't think I'm a conspiracy theorist, although I do figure even if they aren't having a conspiracy, they probably all have a group chat or something, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but I do think that, that there was something Where to Where TikTok that. can't access the Wi-Fi, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Why do we have octogenarians deciding things around technology? I don't understand, but that's a different conversation for a different day. Yeah. And honestly, people making decisions about stuff that they will never have to face. Yes. That really is hard. And especially the younger generation uh, that, that I'm connected to, they're like, that's really frustrating. In 10 or 15 years, this is going to be really hard and we have to deal with it and they're going to be probably dead. 100%. And that's it's, legit. I, it's you, what you can't argue with that because it's totally true. And I wish our predecessors had thought uh, a little bit differently as well, at least with access to information now more than ever before. We are seeing those communities being built. We are seeing people r realize what has been happening and it's eye-opening for a lot of folks for others it's confirming a lot mm -hmm. of things we already suspected but yeah. we're again we're going in the right direction so it's not just the corporations entering that virtuous cycle i think it's all of us we just got to keep pushing on and, and keep again moving that needle forward yeah so i know that this kind of work can be draining sometimes you run into challenges that can be discouraging would you talk a little about what you do to keep yourself inspired or how you recharge so you could keep going how you stay sustainable <laughs> that's i love that it's it really is around a few things we've mentioned so that realizing i can't do it all so really choosing what my red lines are what i won't cross what i how i keep my own ethics and morals about what i do is super important but also remembering the big picture. So thinking holistically about everything that's going on, the positive trends I've seen, really reflecting back on where we were just five years ago versus where we are now. It's a very different world, but one that is going in the right direction. So these are the things that get me out of bed in the morning. Uh, certainly, there would be plenty of reason to fall prey to doomism and to just say, forget it, I'm, I'll go work at McDonald's. But because I have seen such positive movements and I do see the general potential for the work that I do, that's what does it. Yeah, if I didn't see that, I, I would probably give up. But 
at least for the time being, it's happening and it's happening in a good way. <laughs> so if you ever see me hang up my boots, you'll know something's going wrong. I'll, I'll be like, what's going on? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> so what does success look like to you? At the end of the day, anybody who's in sustainability as a profession, the goal, the thing you should have in the back of your head when you wake up in the morning is today I'm putting myself out of a job. That should be it. It's not an attainable one uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I, I will have job security the rest of my life. I know that. But our goal should not be perpetual employment. We should not need to do the things we do. So that is my, that's what success looks like the day I put myself out of a job because I'm no longer needed. Like that. Who do you typically work with or who thrives with your service? It's interesting. When I started the business, Fulcrum Strategic Advisors, I thought I would just work with big companies because that's been my MO pretty much my whole consulting life. But interestingly, they still serve as part of the segment. But the other big segment are small and medium enterprises who realize the approach is very different. They realize that embedding sustainability and sustainable practices at the beginning of their creation it, it makes perfect business sense. They understand the long-term vision of it. But from a valuation perspective, obviously investors love that. So I like people that approach this from a very realistic perspective, If they're, where money is part of the conversation at the very beginning. Uh, for corporations, though, it's the same thing. It's about differentiation, keeping ahead of the market, keeping their consumers happy and responding. So it's those two two groups, but the the SMEs were a bit of a surprise, but I actually like working with SMEs more, which I'm sure you can understand. <laughs> I, I definitely can. So for folks that are listening and they're like, oh, I know someone who could use that service or I want to read your book or I just think you're cool and I want to follow your TikTok. What's the best way for them to find what you're up to and reach out, get in touch, that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. It's just my personal website. So johnpaybon.com. And I'm sure it'll be in the show notes. Uh, and feel free to give me a follow on TikTok. It's John A. Paybon on TikTok. Uh, I'm trying to grow my following. I've been all right. I don't dance, so don't expect any dancing on there. <laughs> now I'm going to follow you and just be like, why aren't you dancing? Why aren't you dancing? <laughs> Come on, dance, dance, monkey, dance. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then uh, would you like to talk a little bit about the your book or what when that releases? Absolutely. Uh, so I have two books to my name. The first one is called Sustainability for the Rest of Us. You're no... I don't know if we can use profanity. You're no BS, a uh, five-point plan for saving the planet. That's been out since 2020. It's available all over the world. Definitely check it out through my own personal website. You can find the links to where you can get it, depending which market you're in. It's a very practical guide to how to save the planet. And my second book, which has been released across the Commonwealth now, and depending on when you're listening to this, it'll be released in North America in February 2024 silly licensing rules. I don't know why that is, but whatever. It's called The Great Greenwashing, How Brands, Governments, and Influencers Are Lying to You. So really no holds barred look at what greenwashing is. So a little bit of education on how these groups are lying to pretend they're sustainable, but really getting into the case studies, both good and bad from, like it says on the cover, what corporations are doing, but also what governments are doing, what international organizations are doing, Sports washing makes a nice little cameo from FIFA and the Olympic Committee, but also getting into what groups like the ultra wealthy at Davos or celebrities or your favorite social media influencers, what they're all doing to try to say they're sustainable when the truth is probably not as altruistic. Uh, so definitely check it out. And also, depending when you're listening to this, the audiobook will be out 
gosh, it'll be out the end of this month, at the end of September 2023. So that should be available worldwide as well. These publishers and their licensing things, I, it's a different world that I do not understand at all. I just do what they tell me. Yeah, no, it's smart. It's definitely complicated. And thank you so much for talking to me today and telling me what you're up to. And I appreciate it. I, I look Absolutely. forward to talking to you again. Isola, and... thank you so much for having me. No, it's been a great conversation. Hopefully one that amplifies both of our messages to create change. I love that. Bye, everybody.